you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We are back in the gospel of John. Had a six-week hiatus as we went through the Advent Christmas season, which means that we have these very Christmassy looking booklets for you. These serve, um, these booklets, as a place for you to take notes from the sermon that is allowed. You can use these in your quiet times. They have questions um, each week for your community group. A lot of your community groups have been on hiatus over the holidays. Those are starting back up. And and hopefully this will be a resource. We'll serve you. If you don't have one, you can grab one on the way out today. You know, as we're back in John and back from the holidays... Um, like many of you, we, we, we were out of town for, for a week or so, and so I had left my, my van um, undriven there for about a week and, and got back, jumped into my van, tried to start it. It wouldn't start, of course. Um, and so, so I jumped it off, and that van began to go off like a pinball machine. It was like Beverly Hillbillies up in here, okay? There was lights and warning Beeps and noises and sounds and rattling and vibrations and a l- just throwing a little bit of smoke as well. So I proceeded to do the most reasonable thing that I could think of when all of that was going on. I've just tried to ignore it since then, okay? Now, now, you may say, well, that doesn't sound really wise, and it's probably not. But let's be honest, sometimes you just don't want to know what's really wrong. <laughs> I, it seems too difficult. It's, it it could be too expensive, Even though intellectually I know the longer I wait, the worse the problem is going to get, and the worse it gets, the harder it will be to fix. You know, and I think there's a real spiritual parallel for us in this. A lot of times we sense that the spiritual warning bells are going off in our heart. They're going off in our souls. We're we're depressed we're anxious. There's, there's trouble brewing in our relationships. We, we feel distant from God. We feel distant from other people. There's, there's all of these sort of bells and whistles saying, attend to me, attend to me. But yet, what is our temptation? I'm just going to keep driving down the road until I have a real crisis. Because the, the longer we wait, the worse it gets, the harder it is to fix. And that's where this passage in John chapter 7 is going to lead us this morning. Jesus is going to introduce us to three groups of people. And and these groups of people, in no particular order, are the brothers of Jesus is one group. A second group are are the crowds, the people who are sort of milling around on the outskirts of Jesus' ministry trying to figure out what this is all about. And then you have the religious leaders the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who are residing in Jerusalem, who don't like what's going on with Jesus. And what's interesting to remember about all of these groups is that all of these are are good religious folk, just like you, just like me. They've all made professions of faith. They've all grown up in the synagogue, the church, the Sunday school, the felt board. They've had the whole experience. Yet, as Jesus and and John, through Jesus, is is wanting to show us, there's something wrong. There's something amiss. There's something not right under the hood. Something is defective here as it relates to 
faith and belief. And remember how this is going to fit into the whole context of the Gospel of John. Remember from the get-go, we've been hammering this over and over, week after week. John 20, verse 31. John says, I've written these things so that you might believe in Jesus and believing in him might have life in his name. And if that's the goal of our whole study of the book of John, trusting, believing Jesus for the long haul, then it behooves us to know, to understand, to discern, to be able to pick out defective faith, fraudulent faith, false faith, Faith that is not faith at all. That's a, we've seen that's a prominent theme over and over and over in the book of John. Believing but not believing. Trusting but not trusting. Having faith but not having faith. And that's what we see in the text this morning. How do we know the difference? What would God have us do here at the onset of 2018 to sort of pop up the hood to check out the condition of our souls and our heart, and to run to Christ. So I'm going to invite you to stand. It's, it's sort of a lengthy passage, so this will get you sort of the blood flowing. You're ready to go. All you back row Baptists, let's go. All right, John chapter 7, we're going to read 24 verses. It's kind of a, a lengthy narrative, but it sort of all fits together. So beginning in verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me 
Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer this morning as we come to your word, that we would not look upon the mere surface or outward appearance of things, but that we could see deep into the heart of spiritual matters, deep into the heart of our own heart, and in doing so, understand afresh, anew, our need for grace today. So Lord, do this work in us. Speak through me when necessary. Speak in spite of me. But Lord, let your glory, your honor echo through this pulpit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may take your seats. We've been in John, and so just to kind of get us back up to speed with where we left off back in chapter 6, remember that Jesus had just concluded his public ministry in Galilee. And it says at the end of chapter 6 that people were deserting him by the droves. They loved his works, but his words, that was quite another matter. And so this is the end of the public portion of his ministry in Galilee. And if you look at verse 1 in chapter 7, it says, after this. And so probably, and we know this from the other Gospels, the Synoptics, that about six months has now passed since all of these folks at the end of chapter 6 have deserted Jesus. And what Jesus has been doing in the meantime is mainly spending time with his disciples in private. Not exclusively, but mainly. He's, he's slowly receding from public ministry in Galilee to spend time with his disciples. He's pouring into them. This is when the transfiguration happens. A whole host of things. And it says that he intentionally avoids, look at verse 1, going to Judea. Because remember, it was there that they wanted to kill him. See, so, so, so back in John chapter 5, remember, that was when we had the miracle of the healing of the paralytic. John 3, this is when, or John 2, this is when Jesus comes into the, the, the temple, and he's saying, we're going to tear this thing down. You're making this thing a, a, a den of robbers. This is full of false religion and hypocrisy and religiosity. And so because he was disrupting the status quo of the religious leaders, they were slowly seething. Their hostility was building up. In fact, from this point forward in the Gospel of John, it is all opposition. It is all hostility. In fact, from this point here, this morning in John 7, a mere six months later, Jesus is going to be crucified. And so John is going to spend the rest of this book detailing this rising opposition, this hostility, so that we can learn something. We can learn something about the nature of faith. We can learn something about the nature of belief because, once again, these were all God-fearing religious folks who went to church every Sunday and read the Torah and went to the synagogue. And Jesus wants to show us two important things about faith this morning as it relates to, number one, his works, and number two, his word. So those are our two points, the works of Jesus, the words of Jesus. Look at Verse 2, it says that Jesus went up at the Feast of Booths. Now remember, 
there were three primary Jewish festivals that all Jewish men were required to go to every year. In this particular one, the Feast of Booths was the last one. It happened in the fall. And it was when the Jews would celebrate the bringing in of the harvest and the provision. And it was a celebratory time. And thousands and thousands of people would, would make the journey to Jerusalem. And, and people, because there was literally no place in the inn, there was not enough room to house everyone, people erected little huts on the side of the road, little booths, okay? It was kind of like the, the ancient version of tailgating, if you can imagine. And so lots of people, every Jewish male would go up, families would travel together, and here the brothers seem to have what I think is a pretty reasonable request. And by the way, these half-brothers, of this is what they are, the half-brothers of Jesus, they shared the same mom, Mary, we know from Matthew 13 that there are four of them, and it gives us their names. Um, again, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Okay? She had other sons. She had sisters. Um, we're we're going to come back to that in a second. But these brothers, being good brothers that they are, come to Jesus with a request. And look in verse 3. They said, Jesus, listen, <laughs> what you're doing over here in Galilee is pretty amazing. Why don't you, we got a great idea, Jesus, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and show them there what you've been doing here? You see, Jesus, you've done some miracles in Jerusalem, but it's been a year or something since you've been there. And up here, you've been feeding 5,000, you've been walking on water, you've been doing miracles. Jesus, don't keep this a secret, my goodness. You've had all these desertions, spiritual desertions, Head on down to Judea. Show them, Jesus, you were, you were no backwoods preacher, right? You were, you were no rural, itinerant, I was going to say something dirt, nasty, hillbilly. There we go. How about that? Reveal yourself. I can say that I'm from Tennessee. We believe in you, right? So they were just doing with Jesus what we often do with our family members. I remember when Jack was six, seven, eight, something like that, and he was playing in a flag football league. And I noticed that basically he was on the, de- on the defensive line, and basically I noticed that every time the ball was snapped, he would stand there. I mean, just stand there for the whole play. So I said, Jack, come over here. Here's what I want you to do, okay? Next time the ball is snapped, I don't care what the coach is doing. I don't care what the offensive lineman is doing. I don't care what anybody's doing. I want you to look at the guy with the ball. And I want you to run at him as hard as you can, and I want you to pull down his pants. It was flag football. You get the idea, right? So pull, pull, pull his flag down. I don't care whatever else happens. And then what did I say? Because I believe you can do it, right? So Jack, the ball is snapped. Jack makes a beeline for the quarterback. Of course, I'm making sure that I get, get it on video on my, on my, on my, on my trusty uh, trio, right? Okay, whatever the little, what, 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 pre-iPhone. Yanks his flag and everybody's celebrating because I believed he could do it. And I told him he could do it. Now, verse 5 is the most confounding verse in this passage, but I think it's the biggest key to understanding what's going on here, what's behind the request of the brothers. They make this request in verse 3, and listen to what Jesus says in verse 5, or or John's commentary. 
for not even his brothers believed in him. <laughs> Let's just think about that for a second, because that does not seem, that does not make any sense, right? G- John seems to be saying that the reason that they asked Jesus to go to Jerusalem and do a bunch of cool stuff and to do great things is because they didn't believe in him. Not that they did. So we have to say, if they didn't believe in him, what, what, what does John mean? Why did they ask him to come down? What was the driving force behind their quote-unquote belief or their faith? You know, I think back to, to, to Jack rushing the quarterback, and let's be honest, part of me, what, when I say part of me, what I really, that's preacher speak for all of me, okay? Wanted Jack to rush in to pull that flag. Why? So that I could capture it for posterity. Okay, and I do watch it every night. It's very inspirational for me. <laughs> I wanted to be able to show it to all the other dads and say, this isn't Jack. This is Jack, what? Gilbert, G-I-L-B-E-R-T. You know who his father is? His father is Paul Gilbert. I wanted to be able to say, I've sired the natural greatest athlete known in the history of man, okay? I, what I prize, was it ultimately Jack's success? Well, maybe there was a little bit of that, right? But I was really, really interested in what his success would mean for me. See, the brothers didn't love and trust Jesus. The brothers loved the works of Jesus. The brothers loved what Jesus could do for them. Jesus, let's be honest, these guys grew up in Galilee. They're waiting for their big break, right? They're they're moving from Tallahassee to to New York City. This is their one-way ticket to fame. They get to be a part of the Jesus entourage and, and, and we chuckle a little bit, but don't we recognize this in evangelicalism, things that masquerade, masquerade as faith? You know, Jesus is okay. Jesus is fine. Jesus might be really good to the extent that he's helpful for me, to the extent that he helps me make social and business connections, to the extent that he helps me find a spouse or be a better parent or fix my marriage, or help me to flourish financially, or to help me overcome my addictions. Now understand something, those are all wonderful blessings of the gospel in different forms and shapes. But let's not confuse things. Let's not take secondary things and make them primary things, because John has a word for that. And Do you know what that word is? Unbelief. That's unbelief. And it's, it's, it's how do we explain this idea oftentimes that people for a season might profess faith, for a season might be trusting in Christ, appearing to trust in Christ to show outward demonstrations of his grace. But what happens? Life happens. Sickness happens. Death happens. Breakups happen. Loss of job happens. Disappointment happens. And when that happens, What do the true people of God do? They persevere. They trust. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's always pleasant. But Jesus said, just as they persecute me, guess what? A servant is not greater than his master. So 
too they will persecute you. So too, you, what does Jesus say? You will have trouble in this world. Now we see this same dynamic of unbelief in the crowds in Jerusalem and in the leaders. And let's look at verse 11. It's, this, it's, it's a different manifestation, but listen, Four Oaks, it's the same dynamic. Okay, look in verse 11. It says that the, the crowds were talking. They were, they were murmuring. They were looking for Jesus because the buzz was in the air, right? And it even says that some suspected that he might indeed be the Christ. But look at what verse 13 says. Let's read that together. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And look at verse 9, that's the crowds. Look at verse 19 with the leaders. These leaders were angry with Jesus because they kept, he kept pointing out that they weren't keeping the law. Now, now as, as different as all of those manifestations of unbelief are, what do they share in common? I want you to think about this with me for a second because the title of this sermon is The Roots of, the Roots of Unbelief. We'll look at the roots of unbelief. What is the common root here? What is the common denominator? If this was, parents, if this was a factorial equation, I see a, I see a math teacher over there. If this were a factorial equation, your student foolishly brings to you, your child foolishly brings to you thinking that you can help them, which you can't, right? Okay, let's all be honest. We're trying to get at what is the, hit a little close to home, didn't it? What is the root? Look at verse 7. The root... Of all unbelief, okay, listen, stay with me here. The root of all unbelief is love of the world. The root of all unbelief is the craving and the approval for praise and recognition from our fellow man. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you. And why, why does he say that? Because their request of Jesus is perfectly consistent with a worldly view. It's perfectly consistent with worldliness. What is the purpose of social media in our world? And don't say to be connected, right? What is the primary purpose? To glorify man, enjoy himself forever, right? You know this. Different manifestations, but it's, but it's true. But it says the world cannot hate you, what? But it hates me. It's just manifested differently. And see, the, the brothers said, you know, God is our ticket to fame, but if he can't provide it, we're out of here. The crowds were like, well, he, he, looks, he looks like he could be the Christ, but we're going to be quiet. Why? Because we're fearful. We're fearful for what other people think. We're fearful. We're, we're, we're craving the approval other, that, that man gives. When I go down here to Chop Barbershop, and we're all having a conversation about some matter, and it veers into spiritual things, what is that thing in me that wants to, wants to turn it down? What is that thing that just doesn't want to put it all out there? What is that? It's the fear of man. Because I crave approval. You crave approval. We see this with the leaders. It just manifests different, a different way. You see, for them, the law was the king. Law was king. And by keeping the law, what did they receive? 
Praise for men. Stand on the street corner. Give publicly. See, this is the root of unbelief is always the same, which is the praise and love affair with the world. So what, what does Jesus do? It says, look back at the text, that he did not go. He told the brothers no. Now, in verse 10, it says he did go later privately. And some would say, well, this is a contradiction. It's not. What it means, folks, is that Jesus was not willing to go the way and the time that his brothers wanted him to go. He didn't go when they wanted. He didn't go how they wanted. He went privately. He did not come to receive self-glorification through the working of his miracles. He came not to serve their agenda. Just a reminder for us, just a reminder, here at the onset of 2018, and you've heard it, you know, new year, new you, right? Got got, got a little bit of that. Biblical faith is not about becoming your best self. Biblical faith is about coming to the end of yourself. Biblical faith means saying, I've got nothing, God. I've got, I've got nothing as we enter 2018. My resolutions are going to fail. How many have already fallen in the resolutions, right? I'm going to premiere every day this week. You went zero times. And when I say you, I mean me. Okay, that's, that's what I mean. Biblical faith means saying, God, I don't have anything to offer you. Not... I'm not tagging along for fame. I'm not tagging along for wealth. I'm not, I'm not tagging along because I think I can earn your favor. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm coming to you, God, because I'm lost. I'm hopeless. I've got nothing to offer you. I've got nothing apart from you. And see, this is what John is going to tell us over and over, what is the most important work that Jesus has come to do? Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Now, what, 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 what time is that? What, what's he talking about? Guys, Jesus came to die. Jesus' death was not incidental. It was not a tragic accident. It was not unorchestrated by God. Jesus came, and as the Gospel of Luke tells us, he set his face as flint to go to Jerusalem. Until we understand that the primary work of Christ is to not elevate us, but to lift us up and reconcile us with him. That's the greatest work that he could ever do and that we could ever embrace. So faith, point number one, I'm going to move on here, is embracing primarily the central work of Christ, independently of what other works God might do for us. And listen, we don't want to forget those as a church family. We want to celebrate the works of God's grace in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships, in our church, in our finances. That's all great. But that's not faith. Faith is the work of Christ on the cross and trusting in that. And then whatever God gives us is from his good hand to be received with thanksgiving, 
to be, to be received with a grateful heart, not a begrudging heart, but it's not to replace our love for him. So that's the work of Jesus. Now let's look at the words of Jesus, our last point. Look at verse 14. So it says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus goes up and begins teaching. Now understand it was very common practice um, around the Temple Mount area and on the Temple Mount itself by the temple for different rabbis, scholars, to sort of set up shop and hold court and to teach. And there was, this was a huge area, and so different scribes and Pharisees, Sadducees would, would, would huddle around, and their followers would, would come up to them, and they would begin teaching. They would begin expounding the Torah or the law or other parts of the Old Testament. And part of what a scribe would do in order to establish their authority is that they would quote other scribes. They would quote and say, well, you know, I'm saying this based upon the fact that, you know, so-and-so said this some 200 years ago, or so-and-so said this 400 years ago, or, you know, the guy across the street, he, he said this, and you know he's a reputable teacher. But yet Jesus was not doing this. <laughs> he wasn't quoting anybody. And so in verse 15, look there, it says, it tells us that they marveled. They were astounded that Jesus was, was, he was not quoting anybody. He seemed to be speaking on his own authority. We're going to find out later that when the Pharisees send the, the temple guards in to arrest Jesus, even they are like, we've never heard teaching like this. Because he wasn't teaching as one with the authority of man, but the authority of God. But verse 15, and this is, this is such a great lesson for us. How did they respond? How did they respond to this man whose teaching they had never heard the likes of before? Verse 15, what does it say? They marveled and skeptically said, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus didn't go to the right school. He doesn't have the right credentials. He wasn't born in the right place. He didn't, doesn't have the right mentors. He's not quoting the right scholars. They didn't, in, listen to this, engage what he was saying. They instead engaged in what we would call today sort of ad hominem attacks. Not responding to the meat of the argument or the truth of the argument but attacking the messenger. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but have you recently discovered that we have almost totally lost our capacity here in the West for dialogue and debate? Have you noticed that? See, it's no longer, no longer are ideas or data or facts or stories measured by their own merits or what is true, or what comports to reality. What is the first question, oftentimes, even as Christians, we ask? What is the first question? What's the source? Where did it come from? Oh, the president said that? That can't be true. Oh, the special prosecutor said that? That can't be true. Oh, th that, that college professor said that? That can't be true. Oh, that's fake news. Everything, and I mean everything, has been completely politicized. That's what happens in a relativistic culture, by the way. When it's no longer about what is really true, it's about power. It's about who, who can hold sway. But please understand something, because it's easy to cast rocks at the, 
at the secular culture. But this isn't a political problem for Oaks. It's a human problem. You see, all of us have the powerful propensity when we hear information, when we hear certain facts or certain truths that don't jive with our preconceived notions or our worldviews or decisions that we've already decided to make come hell or high water, we tend to discard it. Guys, that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith says God's truth is true regardless of whether we think it's convenient or not. Regardless of what claims it makes on our life. And don't let anyone tell you differently, it will make claims. It will, it will, it will sharpen, it will divide, it will cut to the bone and marrow. And this is why when I say this is a human problem, not primarily a political problem, that's just political manifestation. The primary problem is the human heart. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 17. And this is an astounding verse. It's just, it speaks to the heart of man. It speaks to my heart. He says this, if anyone's will, in other words, if you want, if anyone's will is to do God's will, in other words, if you truly want to do God's will, you will know whether the teaching is from God. Let me try to restate that in a couple ways because it's pretty profound. Paraphrase it. Folks, if you really want to know and do God's will, if your bottom line fundamental disposition is to want to know him and to obey him, God's word is plenty clear. It doesn't mean that we don't have honest disagreements or, 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 or debate finer points of theology it simply means that if your heart disposition at the end of the day is to say, God, even when I don't want to do your will, I want to want to do your will. Does that make sense? <laughs> I, I want it. I want you. I want your pure word. I want it poured into my heart that I believe, because Jesus says it here, if your will is to do his will, then he will make his truth known to you. You know, it's easy to beat up progressives. It's easy to beat up liberals. It's easy to think, oh, well, there's, there's, there's just people just recontextualizing, reinterpreting the Bible over and over in so many ways. Homosexuality and same-sex marriage. But we do it all the time. We do it with our money. We do it with our giving. We do it with our generosity. We do it with marriage and divorce. We, we say things to ourselves like, surely God would not want me to be unhappy. Surely God would want me to flourish much more than I'm flourishing right now. You see how it works? The praise of man, the works of Christ, to take that word and we begin to bend it for it to say what we really want to do in our hearts anyway. We all do it. That's why Jesus says in verse 24, he ends this passage with an exhortation. And, and folks, listen. He says, four oaks, do not judge by appearances. What does he mean by that? Don't 
look merely on the circumstances of the thing. Don't use your human reasoning to justify the way that you think you ought to plow through this particular situation or decision. That is not biblical faith. Doesn't mean that every decision is easy. No, 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 no. It can be complex. And we need wisdom and pastors and elders and community group leaders and friends and women Bible study leaders to help us discern these things and walk them out and apply the wisdom. But rarely is God's word, I want to say never, just ambiguous on the most important issues. God's word is not ambiguous ever. We're ambiguous. Our hearts are, are dull. We're, we're deceived. The problem is not with God's word. So Jesus says, judge by appearances. Don't tamper with the word of God. And Jesus makes an astounding claim in verse 16. Do you know why Jesus doesn't quote any other scribes? Because he doesn't need to. Because he is God. His word is truth, verse 16 says, because it comes from the Father. Because let me end this time by exhorting us to some spiritual urgency as we think about what faith looks like in our lives according to the words and works of Jesus. Look back at verse 6. He says, Jesus says something really interesting. Commentators are kind of all over the place on what this means, but here's what I think. Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come. In other words, I have a a one-time and one-time only appointment with death. And and you can't rush me into it. I take my life down, put my life down. I take it up of my own accord. I'm sovereign over my life. But listen, but not you. But your time's always here. (laughs) See what I'm saying? Your time's always here. You don't know your appointed time. I don't know my appointed time. We don't know what today holds, much less tomorrow or next year. So don't judge by appearances. Not the end of the story for the brothers. We kind of left them at the beginning of the message. When's when's the other time we hear about the brothers? We hear about them several times, but let me offer this this word of hope. How did the brothers, glory-stealing, glory-robbing brothers, how did they end up wrestling through these things that Jesus was teaching? Look at verse, this is Acts 1. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it. It's on the screen. Verses, verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and whom? The brothers. The brothers. See, they had come to embrace the words and the works of Christ. That's biblical faith. James became the leader of the New Testament church in Jerusalem. Jude penned a letter in the New Testament, as James did as well, because they ultimately came to resonate. What I pray in 2018, we resonate with in our hearts, Four Oaks. It's what Peter said at the end of chapter 6. He said this, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You 
have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Let's pray.